Oh, yeah, let me echo what Keith said is if, if you attend this conference this weekend and then don't put it into practice, uh, that, that's a fail. Okay, so God has given you this, brought me here for a reason, so that you would put it into practice. And I'm, I'm challenged in the same way, because sometimes people will ask me, Mark, tell us about some of your recent, you know, attempts to share the gospel. So I've got to stay doing this too. There's a danger when we hear this stuff to go, all right, good. Uh, what I believe is makes sense. There's, there's reliability there. I'm all set. And uh, to forget that God wants to take this and to use it in our lives. Uh, to share the gospel with other people, and really to change the way we view our Christian life. I think the best thing you can do to jumpstart or to uh, supercharge the progress in your Christian life is to make it a habit to share the gospel, because it will continually challenge you. God will bring people into your life that ask hard questions, and you'll say, man, i gotta, I got to search that out. i got to study and find an answer for that. And I think that's necessary. I think in a church and in the life of a Christian, if we're not pouring out in an attempt to give the gospel, we can become uh, really stagnant. So tonight we're talking about how do we know that the Bible is reliable? Everything that we are talking about as Christians, everything we seek to defend, everything that we seek to share about Jesus goes back to the scripture. So if the very Bible we trust is not reliable, we are up a creek without a paddle. Richard Dawkins is probably one of the most famous atheists in the world. And uh, he actually, in England, was pushing for a while, I don't know if he's still doing this, but pushing for a while for the King James Version to be read in the schools in England. Even though he's an atheist, believes the Bible's ridiculous, he said, you can't be a cultured person unless you read the Bible. And so for a while he was pushing that the British public schools would include a Bible reading from the King James, not as a true document, but as a, uh, as a cultural thing. But he writes this about the Bible. Do you really mean to tell me the only... Oh, I'm sorry, reading the wrong one. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. So that's his view of the Bible. Uh, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, Bart Ehrman, is a leading critic at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill's written probably eight or nine New York Times bestsellers, and they're all criticisms of the Bible. You can make a lot of money doing that. It's probably one of the easiest ways to become rich is uh, take some time, study, and then write a critique of Christianity or the Bible. So what do we do then when these kind of criticisms are launched? How do we defend this document this book that we base everything in our faith on. I want to read from Hebrews 4.12 to begin to remind us what the Bible is. Because sometimes as Christians, when we hear those critiques and those attacks, we can start to doubt ourselves. How do we know that the Bible is reliable? How do we know that it's something that hasn't been distorted and corrupted? And one of Bart Ehrman's books is all about the corruption of Scripture, claiming that we have no idea what the original New Testament says. Uh, meanwhile, it's quite obvious that, uh, that he knows that what he's saying is not true uh, because he's written other things where he has to then admit after he's been proven wrong on these issues. Bart Ehrman, by the way, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, made a profession of faith, thought he was going into the ministry. After Moody, he went off to Wheaton to study Greek, 
And uh, when he got to Princeton to work on his PhD, he lost his faith there and is now one of the leading critics of the Bible. He's a genuine New Testament scholar, and I think most of what he knows, most of what he writes, he knows is not true. Uh, because anyone who does New Testament scholarship, and we have a lot of good evangelical scholars that point out problems with his argument, helps you realize that suppression of the truth happens even at those high levels where people will criticize the Bible while they know what they're writing is false. But again, it makes you a lot of money. So Hebrews 4.12, we're told the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the scripture is the basis for our arguments, for our beliefs, and therefore we need to know uh, how reliable it is. So let's ask the question, can we trust uh, the reliability of the Bible? And here's some of the arguments that we'll hear. Uh, some people will say, I don't believe in the Bible. Uh, you might hear that one commonly, I don't believe in the Bible. And uh, what, do you, what do you do when you don't know what to say? Okay. Ask a question. That's right. Why don't you believe? So that might be my first question. If someone says, I don't believe in the Bible, why not? And what you'll often find is people will reject the truth of the Bible, never having read it. And we can challenge them. That's not a very rational thing, is it, to reject the Bible when you haven't even read it? Why don't you take the time to read it? Now, I don't believe necessarily that a reading of the Bible is going to solve that problem. My skeptic friend Scott is reading through the Bible for the third time, but he's reading it from a very negative viewpoint, looking for things to criticize, looking for ways to, um, you know, point out what he thinks are errors or contradictions or wicked actions by God. But ask people honestly, have you ever read the Bible uh, with an open mind? We might also ask, what specifically don't you believe? Because so many of the events are verified historically. And I wish we could uh, take the time to go into the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, without exaggeration, historically verified events mentioned in the Bible. The Bible is unlike anything, as we'll talk about in just a moment, any other sacred writings, where it mentions so many places and events and people that if it wasn't true, could very easily be discredited. And yet it is not for that very reason. <clears throat> Here's another one. I can't trust a 2,000-year-old book. If you don't know what to say, what are you going to do? Ask a question. So what might you ask? Don't overthink it. Okay, how do you know it's 2,000 years old? What other question might you ask? Why not? What does the age of the book have to do with its truth? Uh, if we read a, a, a history of Caesar that was written 1,500 or 2,500 years ago, should we automatically doubt it because it's old? I don't think so. Uh, a medical book maybe written 2,000 years ago? Yeah, we'd have great concerns about that. Uh, but that's, that's talking about something in this world, not something outside the world. I could also, sometimes I'll tell people, actually, the Bible is a collection of 66 books, some of which are 3,500 years old. It's not just 2,000. The, the most recent books of the Bible are 2,000 years old. The older ones are 3,500 years old. In other words, sometimes it's fun to make a case for their argument to help them. Like, okay, listen, if you're going to be an atheist, there's better arguments than that. 
helps them realize that you might know more than you think you know, and you're not that gullible Christian who just believes because you were taught to believe that. Some people will say the Bible's full of contradictions. What kind of question might you want to ask about that? Give me an example of one. Can you show me one? And the truth is, some people have read the Bible. Uh, some people have read about the Bible and have some questions where they think certain things are contradictions. And truthfully, there are some really difficult passages in the Bible that's hard to know. Okay, how would I answer this? But I do know that somewhere there's been a scholar, uh, a Christian um, intellectual who has, who has figured out those questions, a historian, an archaeologist, uh, whatever it might be. And some of the websites I've given you in the back of the handout can help you with that kind of thing. But I want to ask them, can you show me one contradiction? And then I might want to ask, is it truly a contradiction or a misunderstanding of the ancient text in context? This happens all the time. Some people want to impose modern expectations upon an ancient text. Uh, a perfect example is 1 Corinthians mentions a battle in the Old Testament. And uh, it mentions something about in one day, 23,000 people fell in battle. The Old Testament text says 24,000 people fell in battle. So how, how might we answer that? Well, two things. Number one is that in the ancient world, they weren't as deeply concerned about accuracy in numbers as we are today. Uh, we can tell you exactly, essentially, how many people died in World War II or Vietnam War, things like that. But secondly, the Old Testament account talks about the number of casualties over two days. Apparently, in one day, 23,000 people were killed. The next day, another 1,000. So sometimes it's just a misunderstanding where they think it's a contradiction, but they haven't read the story closely enough or paid attention to the details. Uh, sometimes people will say, um, you know, how can we possibly know um, that the accounts of Jesus are accurate? A good comeback is, well, well how were ancient documents written 2,000 years ago? In other words, they're assuming that what was written 2,000 years ago in the gospel, they, they know how that worked historically. <laughs> See how foolish that is? I'll ask someone, so how were, how were, how were histories written then? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, that, I may not even know either as a Christian, but how can we pass judgment on that historically written document if we don't even know how everyday documents were written 2,000 years ago? So sometimes you encounter people that think they have a zinger, like totally disproves the Bible, when in fact you want to point out you, don't even, may un, you may not even understand what you're asking. So how do we know the Bible's reliable? Let's talk about some things that will help us when we give answers. And if I could, if I could convince churches of a 16-part apologetic series, we could cover all the major areas of here's, here's some resources for you. Uh, up till now, I've kind of given you a tactic for engaging unbelievers. This session is more, here's some, here's some arguments, some ammunition when people raise questions on the reliability of the Bible. Two things. Number one is we have internal evidence that uh, strengthens the case of the Bible. So internal evidence refers to what we may deduce from the document itself. So the first one is this. The Bible, unlike most other sacred writings of world religions claims to be the revelation of God. That is, most sacred writings of world religions don't claim to be a revelation from a God. Uh, probably about 
six or seven years ago when I was teaching at a seminary in Philadelphia, I got a phone call one day from uh, the academic dean of Strayer University in Allentown. And I uh, said, Mark, I got your number through some other people and I'm desperate for a world religions professor. Can you come teach it this semester? I said, I really don't know anything about world religions. I'd never had a class and I didn't know much about it. She goes, well, do you think you could learn enough to teach the class for the, you know, it starts in three weeks? I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I immediately went to work, you know, trying to bone up on world religions and figure out, you know, how best to teach it. Uh, and one of the things I came across as I began to read the Quran and the Tao Te Ching and the Hindu Vedas and the Buddhist Sutras, just sampling some of their sacred writings, is that almost none of them claim to be revelation from a god. They claim to be rather the pious reflections of enlightened people about their experiences of the divine. It was just people saying, I had this vision, or I had this encounter with the divine, or I've grown to enlightenment, but almost none of them claim to be a revelation from a God. And so the Bible stands unique in that sense. Now, there are a few that do claim to be revelation. Anybody want to take a shot at what some of those religions might be? Claim to have received revelation from God? Okay, the Book of Mormon. Any others you can think of? Quran. In fact, Joseph Smith was well aware of Islam and so many parallels between those two stories. Both Muhammad and Joseph Smith had an angel appear to them, tell them about golden plates buried in a hillside or a cave that only they could read. And so the entire religion rests on that one person, Muhammad for the case of Islam, or Joseph Smith for Mormonism. And after they saw the golden plates, they disappeared. See how all of Mormonism rides on the truthfulness of Joseph Smith, which when you begin to study the history is very shaky. I would not trust that guy, certainly not with my wife, um, because he was li living the polygamous wife even before he announced that was a revelation from God. Um, same with Muhammad. Muhammad was illiterate. He couldn't read, and then suddenly he could read this, these golden plates, and he began to go on jihad and kill anyone who would not uh, bow the knee to his new religion contrast to the Bible, as we'll see in just a moment, very different nature of the Bible itself. Secondly, then, the Bible contains no errors and therefore stands unique among sacred writings. Forgot all about that. That might be better. So the Bible stands unique in the sense that it has no errors. Now, obviously, critics are going to argue that, but we can challenge them. What are the errors that you think are in the Bible, as opposed to the Book of Mormon where Joseph Smith claims things that are obviously not true. There's a fascinating uh, study on the geography of the Book of Mormon where Joseph Smith claims a certain land feature, a crescent-shaped ridge of mountains with a, a swirly river that comes through it, and he describes this land. And uh, about 20 years ago when Google Earth came out, Mormon scholars scoured the entire Earth trying to find this formation. And they came to the conclusion, there's no such place like this on earth. Well, that strikes a serious blow to the reliability of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Joseph Smith also claimed to have known about people living on the moon. And he describes them in great detail. And he always describes them as, thus says the Lord, the people who live on the moon, blah, blah, blah. Well, those are obvious errors. Uh, now, the, the Quran itself claims very few things that could be verified to begin with. It's mostly 
commands and stories that really have no connection to, to history. But in the Bible, names, places, events, uh, geographical features, um, relationship to the Roman Empire, Egyptian uh, Empire, all these things are so easily verified. Now, there are some things we can't prove conclusively, things like the Exodus. That is debated as to when that happened and, and what evidence there is. But even there, there's evidences, for example, of mass graves on the Saudi and Arabian Peninsula. Why would there be mass graves? Because remember, God told everyone over 20 years old, you'll never make it to the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness for your stubbornness. And along the path, along the road from Egypt where they left toward the promised land, historians have discovered mass graves of, I think it's tens of thousands of people. Beside the fact that they wandered in the wilderness and many died there. So any historical evidence that you see in the Middle East clearly points to the truth of the Bible. Here's another one that's really hard for critics to deny. Over 2,000 prophecies that are recorded in the Bible have been fulfilled with another 500 or so yet to be fulfilled. That is multiple times throughout the Old Testament, things predicted and fulfilled within the Old Testament itself, and then later in the Old Testament, things predicted, fulfilled in the New Testament. 2,000 details. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice whenever they refer to something in the Old Testament, the place of Jesus' birth, the very nature of his death, his crucifixion, uh, that no bones are broken. That's predicted. And as you know, in the story of the crucifixion, the soldiers break the bones of the thieves on either side of Jesus, yet they don't break his bones because he was already dead. Even fine little details like that. And so what do the critics do? Well, they try to claim then that these books were written hundreds of years after they, they, that we know that they were written, or even that uh, somehow Jesus and his disciples were trying to line up their lives to fulfill as many as they possibly could. The problem with that theory is that most of the fulfillment of those prophecies was unexpected by the disciples. A really good example is the resurrection itself. The disciples did not anticipate it. They were hiding away in an upper room. Mary and the other women go to the tomb. They come back. They say, you know, we saw an angel. He said, Jesus is written, risen. The disciples go, oh, yes, I knew it. No, what do they do? John is very clear. They didn't believe. They ran to the tomb. They did not believe. Here's a good example of the fact that many of these things that were fulfilled were unexpected. So when they were fulfilled, it took them by surprise. Here's another few things. Um, incidental details in the New Testament point to genuine events and not myths or legend. That is, as ancient historians uh, read the Gospels especially, or other parts of the New Testament too, but especially the Gospels, they notice that there are details included in the text of the Bible that if you were making it up, you would never include. Perfect example is Mark 14, 51 and 52. In the middle of Jesus' arrest, suddenly there's a naked guy who runs through the scene. Like, why would you include that unless it really happened? And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Historians who, who study ancient records of people's lives say this doesn't happen unless, you know, this is not included unless it really happened. Because if you're trying to make up a legend, you would not include details in here like that. Other things like Peter's denial. And which gospel is it highlighted the most? It's the gospel of Mark. And, and historians believe that 
Mark wrote his gospel at the instruction of Peter because the two are linked together uh, later in the New Testament. And where is Peter's denial most emphasized? In the gospel of Mark. So if you're writing a gospel and you, and you could easily make yourself the lead character, why would you include the greatest detail of your failure to believe your own Messiah? And yet that's what's included. So people who study ancient documents say these are strong witnesses to the reliability of these gospel accounts, because if you were making them up, you would never include those kinds of things. And uh, two more internal evidences. Number, let's see, what is that? One, two, three, four. I guess this would be number five. The 66 books of the Bible exhibit an unexplainable unity of message. I probably should have given you the kind of blanks that I did in the previous handouts where you just have to write one word. <laughs> this is what it's like coming to class in college. When I hand out these kind of notes, students are like, oh, I have to actually write notes. Um, yes, you do. Sorry about that. But when you compare, again, the Bible with other writings of world religions, for example, the, let's take some of the Eastern religions. No one really knows uh, what the foundations of the beginnings of Hinduism are. They're shrouded in mystery. They have all these fanciful myths about two gods, and it's mostly in the ancient, in the Asian religions, two gods having sex, and as a result, the world came into being. Um, but no one actually believes those are historically true. So they don't know where the earliest writings came from. They don't know who wrote them. Uh, they, they're usually not related to any historical events, just those diary-type reflections on their experience of the divine. But the Bible is a compilation of 66 books. Look at that, written over 1,400 years by over 40 different authors in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Aramaic is, looks just like Hebrew, same letters, just pronounced differently. It's kind of like if you meet someone from the Deep South and you're speaking the same language, but you almost can't understand them. Uh, in at least five different countries where they were writing about events that took place on three different continents. So the events in Egypt take place in the continent of Africa. The events that take place in, in Israel and Palestine are part of Asia. And then when you cross over into Paul's missionary journeys into Italy, and he talks about going to Spain, that's Europe. Three different continents. And yet this entire library of books we call the Bible agrees with one another. There's no human explanation for that kind of agreement. That is not something that you find anywhere else in the world. And then the last internal evidence is this, that the universal belief in justice and human dignity, at least that people claim to believe in, only makes sense in light of the Bible's teaching. That is, all around the world you have, among people of different ethnic groups, different religions, a concern for human dignity and justice. But in most of those religions, there is, there's no basis for that. Think, for example, about Hinduism. Hinduism believes that whatever life you're living now, uh, you've lived many lives before. I saw an interview with the Dalai Lama, who's Buddhist, and he said that he's probably lived a million lives before. And the enlightened of those, of those religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, will claim that they remember their former lives, which would be very entertaining uh, to listen to. But basically, they claim then that uh, this process of reincarnation is about paying off karma. Now, in the, in the way we talk about karma in our society, we think about you do something bad, you're going to get 
your just desserts. But karma is actually in a previous life, I've done something bad, so I've got I've to pay it off. I've got to earn my way out of that karma in this life. If I fail to do that, I go back to a lower form of life. I might be a slug or I might be a really, you know, deformed or diseased person. So it's not like, you know, you go on the scale from slug to NBA superstar or anything like that. You know, the next level up from a, a really, you know, healthy life as a human being might be an eagle or something like that. But basically, you're going to live thousands, if not millions of lives paying off your karma. And when you finally pay it off, then you have arrived at enlightenment. And here's the problem. Let's say I'm walking down the street as a Hindu and I see someone in need, maybe someone that's been beat up and left, you know, good Samaritan situation. If I help them, I pay off my karma some more. But they're suffering. They're, they're paying off their karma by being in the gutter. So if I interfere, isn't that kind of selfish on my part to, to help myself pay off karma? Interrupting, they're paying off their karma. And so there's this contradiction within Hinduism where I'm not sure if I should help that person or not. Because if I help them, then I'm being selfish and now I'm going to have to pay off that karma. If I don't help them, then I'm going to be paying off the karma for not helping them. See, that doesn't make any sense in Hinduism. But in the Christian faith, because people are made in the image of God and we are called to serve and to love them, then things like justice and concern for others and respect for human dignity make sense. If you take an atheistic, naturalistic worldview, as we talked about earlier, then every one of us is just a collection of our DNA. None of us is really unique. There's no purpose in your life. You're here to propagate your genes, and the truth is the strong will survive, the weak will die off. There's no compelling reason for me to be concerned about you. Now, I may, and sometimes you'll meet atheists who are moral people that care about others. But if that's the way they are, that's just because their genes have programmed them to be. And if I meet someone who's a thug and a criminal, then that's just who they're programmed to be, and how could I blame them for that? And yet intuitively, we know that can't be right, right? About 100 years ago, there was a famous court case in the United States. It's called the Leopold Loeb case. And uh, these were two bright, young, socialite uh, young men in Chicago who went to a really expensive prep school, and they decided they were smarter than anyone else. So they murdered one of their classmates just to show that they could get away with it because they thought they were smarter than the police. Well, it turns out they weren't smarter than the police, and the police caught them, and they went on trial. And a famous atheistic lawyer defended them named Charles um, Clarence Darrow. And uh, Clarence Darrow went on to become famous at the Scopes Monkey Trial about six months later, which kind of ruined the concept of, or the idea of Christians in America as being backwards and unintelligent. But Clarence Darrow made the case that these two, young men, these two young men were just the product of their DNA. They couldn't be held responsible for killing their classmate. And he got them off the death penalty. They still went to jail. It's a tragic story. But the nation was outraged 100 years ago because, you know, what if we start letting people off because of their DNA just programmed to do it? But that is consistent with the atheistic worldview. So when you meet a very moral atheist or skeptic, who talks about being concerned for other people, I'm going to say, hey, that, that's great, but that really is not consistent with what you believe. Or if it is, then that's your opinion, but you shouldn't be criticizing others who don't care about other people because it's not consistent. Only in the Christian worldview do these universal virtues make sense because we're made in the image of God. So that's what we call internal evidence. Those are 
things about the Bible that come from the text itself or the document itself. Let's look at external evidence. External evidence refers to what information we have about the composition of a document. That is how the Bible was put together. And there's some exciting things here. Notice this, for example, the sheer number of early manuscripts of the Bible. That is, if we talk about how many manuscripts of the Bible do we have that go back many, many centuries, 5,800 plus. And the truth is we are finding new ones almost every year. There's a ministry in Dallas called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Dan Wallace, who teaches at Dallas Seminary, uh, he spends most of his summers traveling to libraries around the world in, in Egypt and Turkey and Eastern Europe, and he finds manuscripts of the New Testament that go back sometimes 14, 15, 1600 years, close to the time of the apostles. And so this number is growing all the time. Plus, in the early church, there were 20,000 other ancient manuscripts of different, I should say, of different languages, not 20,000 other languages, but 20,000 other manuscripts in different languages. Let me, let me zoom ahead and show you a comparison here. When people talk about how do we know the Bible's reliable, here's, here's the example of the, uh, the ancient writings that we have the most copies of. So Plato, no one disputes that Plato existed, and uh, his, his books... Uh, his most written about book, I forget which one it is at this time, were written um, around the time of his life, 400 years before Christ. The earliest copy that we have is from 900 AD, which means from the time it was originally, or the time the, the events really happened to the uh, copy of the manuscript we have is 1,200 years. And how many copies do we have? Seven. Seven ancient copies. Let's move forward a little bit. Homer's Iliad. Uh, written originally around 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., 500 years after it happened. We have 643 manuscripts. It's quite a bit. And then look at the Bible. Compared to anything else in the ancient world, the events took place between 50 and 100 A.D. The earliest copies we have are from 130 A.D., less than 100 years between the events and the manuscripts. And how many do we have? I put 5,600, it's 5,800 plus growing with a 99.5% accuracy in the sense that we know exactly what the original said, even though we don't have the original manuscripts of Paul's writing. You say, Mark, what about that 0.5%? It's often words that have nothing to do uh, for, with anything of significance. For example, Paul says, I think in Galatians somewhere, um, something along the lines of may God fill you with some manuscripts say grace, others say hope. Does that affect doctrine at all? No, not at all. And so we can basically say we know exactly what the original manuscripts were saying. And compared to anything else in the ancient world, look how reliable the Bible is. And by the way, no one questions the reliability of these writings. And yet look how many we have, how close we have to the actual events that happen. So when people say, how do we know the Bible is reliable? You should smack your head and go, are you kidding me? Nothing else compares to it in the ancient world. Let me go back one here. We also have the high degree of reliability in the Greek manuscripts that we have. As we said, um, here's an interesting fact. No two ancient Greek manuscripts are exactly alike. 
So some people say, well, see, none of them are exactly alike. How can we know? Well, first of all, because the manuscripts are very different. Some of them, some of the Greek manuscripts we have are the entire New Testament, Gen uh, Genesis to Revelation, Matthew to Revelation. Others are small fragments the size of a postage stamp. But when we compare them and contrast them, what we find is the reason that they're not identical is because human scribes copied them after they were originally given to Paul and Peter and James and John. And those scribes made obvious spelling errors. Sometimes they skipped a line. Sometimes they'd forget a word and write it in the margin. Uh, I spent a semester at Harvard studying this to, to look at the actual manuscripts. And it's, it's so obvious what happened there. Just like if, you were, if I asked each of you to, to copy uh, from me reading to you out loud the Declaration of Independence. We'd have some spelling mistakes. We'd have some people that would fall asleep midstream, and we have ancient manuscripts that show the hand of the scribe, then all of a sudden it kind of like veers off the page. Because these guys were copying sometimes by the light of a candle in a stuffy monastery uh, with very little ventilation, and they would fall asleep. Um, other manuscripts, uh, they might repeat the word the at the end of the line, you know, right, uh, and he went to the, and then the next line, forgot they wrote that, wrote the again, the store. Um, not that ever any, anyone ever wrote about going to the store, but all these types of copyist errors, which don't reflect at all on the reliability of the manuscript because it's a copyist error, and we can see right away what the true text of the New Testament ought to be. And again, compared to anything else in the ancient world, the Bible stands head and shoulders above it. Here's another thing about external evidence. We have archaeological confirmation of biblical events, dates, and places. This, is, this excites me. For the last 200 years, archaeology was not even invented or discovered or began to be practiced until about 150 to 200 years ago, and sometime in the 1800s. And initially, critics lobbed all these arguments against the record of the Bible. For example, for, for more than 100 years, they claimed the Bible talks about the Hittite people, at one time, it was supposed to be this great kingdom in the Middle East. About a, for a hundred years, they said, see, the Bible's in error. There's no evidence of this Hittite kingdom. And then sometime about uh, 75, 80 years ago, they found evidence of the Hittite kingdom, discovered it was this massive kingdom, and now there's archaeological evidence. No one questions it anymore. And by the way, we often think, well, the, the evidence should be lying there right on the ground, right, in the Middle East. So how hard can it be? But they, they recently discovered a jeep that had been abandoned in the, in the Sinai Peninsula uh, in the war, uh, I think it's the Six Days War in 1967. It was abandoned in 1967. They found it under 53 feet of sand. So since 1967, that 53 feet of sand had blown in over that area. So the problem with archaeology, when people say, oh, see, there's no evidence for this, is we have only begun, just begun, to tap into and discover certain sites because it's buried so deeply under centuries of sand. But there's some exciting things that have been found. Let me share some of those with you. First of all, uh, Nelson Gleck, a leading Jewish archaeologist, said about 60 years ago, and it's been proven over and over since then, he says it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or disproven a biblical reference. This is not from a Christian archaeologist, but a Jewish one. Uh, there's something called the Tel Dan Stel. A stel is like a, uh, a stone document with they, they wrote on. 
It was discovered in 1993 in northern Israel. Until the discovery, this is interesting, until the Tel Dan Stel was discovered in 93, for all of modern history, there was no biblical or non-biblical evidence or reference to King David in any archaeological find. And so critics often said, oh, the Bible talks about this King David. We have no reference to him whatsoever. He's mythical. See, you can't trust the Bible. And then in 1993, they find this fragment of stone. And what does it mention? It mentions the house of David. And since then, we've discovered several other references to King David. And by the way, never do these critics of the Bible ever come back and say, listen, we were wrong. We should just trust the Bible and wait to see what we discover. No, they, they, they never do that. Here's something even more recent. The palace of King Sennacherib. In 2014, three years ago, ISIS destroyed a historical site in Mosul, um, in Mosul, Iraq, that was believed to be the burial site of Jonah. For, for 2,000 years, it's been a kind of a shrine to uh, the existence of Jonah that, that the local people recognize. Oh, this is the biblical account of Jonah. ISIS came in in 2014 and blew the place up because they like to destroy historical um, sites. In doing so, they uncovered the palace of Sennacherib, who was mentioned in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. Again, every one of these is just another confirmation that what's, that's what, what is recorded in the Bible uh, is true. And uh, that, therefore, Christians get really excited about archaeology because over and over again, these things have been proven. One more here, the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, anybody know what they are? <laughs> it's sometimes harder to know. But here, here's a brief overview. In 1946 and 47, and then again in 1956, and notice that last date. They just, a professor at Liberty University just found another scroll back in February this year. They're basically scrolls that are hidden in large clay pots in caves um, in the Negev Desert, if you've ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember toward the end they're going through that place in the Middle East. So there's these canyons up on either side, and they're driving through these mountainous canyons trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. Well, in that general area, back in the 40s, depending on how the story goes, some shepherd boys found these clay pots. They were either searching through caves or they were throwing rocks up into the caves, and they heard something that sounded like breaking glass. So they climb up there. There's these large clay pots with scrolls in them. Uh, they don't know what they are. They put them in their car, bring them into Jerusalem, sell them in the market. Some guy buys them, doesn't know what they are. And then an archaeologist comes along in the market one day and says, oh, wait a second, these are ancient manuscripts. And they were very, um, very fragile at that point because they'd been brought out of the desert where they were preserved. Uh, and they begin to go back and search for these things, and they discover hundreds and hundreds of documents, some, again, little fragments, others entire scrolls, of documents from a, a community that existed in Jesus' day called the Essenes. They were kind of a separatist group that went up into the mountains, lived by themselves. They were waiting for the messenger of light, waiting for their Messiah to come and rescue them, and so they lived a separate life. But along with that, they found some biblical scrolls. So these scrolls dated from 300 years before Christ until about 100 years after. 40% of these scrolls are copies of texts from the Old Testament. And here's the importance of this. Here's a picture of what's called the Isaiah scroll. I forget how long it is. It's, it's feet long. It's something like 13 feet long if you unrolled it here on the floor. And here's some amazing facts. Before this was discovered, 
The oldest copy of Isaiah that we had went back to just 1,000 A.D., about 1,000 years ago. In, this, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a copy of Isaiah from 100 B.C., 1,100 years older than our oldest copy. And here's what they found. 1,100 years separated between our oldest copy and this one, the two scrolls were almost identical. In other words, critics for a long time said, oh, over the years, the, the real text is corrupted. We have no idea what it said. This destroyed that whole notion. Because here you had two scrolls of Isaiah, 1,100 years apart, and they were almost identical. And once again, well, what about the parts that weren't? Spelling errors, mistakes that are very obvious. That points to the reliability of the Bible that we don't have to worry about, is this really the, what they were originally written? Uh, now we notice in, in different translations, words can be translated differently. That is all just the nature of language. A couple more external evidence. I know I'm backing the truck up on you and just dumping it. So we're almost done here. One more external evidence is the historical accuracy of biblical details as the Bible records little details that have been since confirmed over and over again. Things like the census. Remember when Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem? A lot of people have challenged, well, that never happened when in fact we found details of the census. Even rulers mentioned incidentally in the New Testament that we know because of other historical documents that these are correct. And the accuracy is so high that and here's the thing. Critics of the Bible question the reliability of the Bible. But I've been told by, uh, that archaeologists and historians consider the Bible to be the most reliable document they have. They work from the assumption that it's true. It's critics who are not experts in those areas that assume that it's not true. And so we ought to respect the fact that these people who know these ancient documents consider them to be true from the outset. A couple more things on the back. Some would say the four Gospels contradict one another. So my skeptic friend says, don't you know that in each of the four Gospels, they have Jesus saying different last words? Did you know that? Each of the four Gospels records a different last words of Jesus. So isn't, isn't that a contradiction? Shouldn't we recognize that obviously that they've gotten certain things wrong or they reported it differently? Here's some answers we could give. If the gospel writers were conspiring, they could have done a whole lot better making their accounts identical. Now, there is, there is a great similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as a result, we call those, what kind of gospels? Anybody know? Synoptic, because they have a lot of overlap, and yet each one is distinct. Which should not be surprising, since they're re reporting on the same events, um, the message Jesus gives in one place would, have, would not have always been necessarily completely different than he preached somewhere else. We know in the New Testament we have a tiny fraction of what Jesus ever said. So when the, when the Gospels report different wordings of Jesus saying, that should not be surprising. Uh, tomorrow I will preach in your two services. I can guarantee you I'm not going to say the same exact thing in both, even though I'm going to try to do that. And Keith, you probably encounter that, and Brandon, whenever you preach, that try to keep them exactly the same, but, but you can't because you are thinking other ideas, or your wife said, please don't give that illustration of me again in the second service. Uh, but essentially, the message is the same. But we also notice that each gospel has a different, is that the way it works? 
Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. It happens in my home, too. Each gospel has a different purpose and intended audience, so we should expect them to have variation. That is, Matthew's writing to Jews, so he includes a lot more details about uh, Jewish-related things, whereas in Mark, written to Gentiles, we have explanations of those Jewish things. So the Gospels have different purposes. One of the most famous critics of the Bible who eventually became a Christian after trying to disprove the Bible is a guy named Simon Greenleaf. He was a professor of law, I think at Harvard, an Oxford-educated man, if I remember correctly. And Greenleaf, who at one time was a skeptic, became a Christian the more he researched the Bible. He says the type of eyewitness accounts given in the four Gospels, accounts which agree, but with which each, but with each writer choosing to omit or add details different from the others, is typical of reliable, independent sources that would be accepted in a court of law as strong evidence. Think about it. Um, you ask someone, hey, what, what happened at church? You know, maybe there was some, some disturbance at church. If four separate people gave you word-for-word -word accounts that were identical, would you be a little suspicious? Uh, you'd be like, you know, that, that is exactly what the last three people said. You would start to wonder, did, did you rehearse this? Did you practice this answer? You would expect that someone sitting maybe in the front of the auditorium that saw it happen, or an usher, or Pastor Keith, or the cameraman in the sound booth, would describe essentially the same event, but from different perspectives. That would be expected because of those different perspectives. J. Warner Wallace, whose book Cold Case Christianity is probably one of the finest when it comes to evidence, said this. He was a cold case detective for many years. He said, in all the cases I've ever worked, from simple theft and assault cases to robberies and homicides, I've yet to have a case where the witnesses of the event agreed on every single detail. It's never happened. I've learned that perspective is important, and it's not just one's physical perspective that determines what a witness did or didn't see. That is, we are each going to report it differently, even though we get the same details right. So most historians of the ancient world say the fact that we have four Gospels and they differ in some of their descriptions, aids or, or lends authority to the fact that these are true because they're not just repeating a story that they've been told. I like to tell a joke, it's not really a joke, but a story in, in, um, in college where, you know, college professor gives a test and then four students show up late for the test. And uh, they say, oh, professor, we're on our way to school and our car broke down and we had a flat tire. So he immediately separated all four students. Tell me what happened. Well, we were on our way to school and we had a flat tire. We were on our way to school and had a flat tire. All four give the same exact account. And then the professor, keeping them separately, went to each student and said, which tire was it? And that's where you're going to find out, is this a contrived story or did this really happen? When it comes to the Gospels, the differences we have strengthen the reliability of the accounts. A couple more here. Number two, some critics would say the Gospels are legends. Uh, maybe you've heard the, the famous trilemma of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I think I will mention that sometime uh, tomorrow in my, in my message, unless, I, unless it's showing up here, maybe. Uh, no, it doesn't. So C.S. Lewis said uh, in Mere Christianity, either Jesus is a liar, couldn't just be a good teacher, because he claimed to be God, claimed to be the only way to heaven. He's either a liar 
or a lunatic, he's a crazy man, because there are crazy people that think they are God in the flesh, or he is Lord, right? Have you heard that before? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Some have come along today and say, no, there's a fourth option Lewis didn't consider. It, it could very well be that Jesus is simply a legend, that all this is made up, that maybe there was this wise man and his disciples, followers just exaggerated. But here's the problem with that argument. We do, we can identify legends in the ancient world. But here's what happens. The Gospels are too early to be legends. When legends develop in the, in the world, they take hundreds of years to develop. And yet the Gospels are written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' life. And the problem with creating legends is there are too many people still alive that can say, no, that's not how it happened. No, no, he didn't, he didn't rise from the dead. You know, we distracted the guards and we stole the body. And yet we have no record of anyone in the ancient world ever disputing the events of Jesus' life or his resurrection. And so these could not have been legends because there were too many people alive to, at the time that could have refuted it. Here's another thing. The content is counterproductive to legends and contains details that are unnecessary, as we talked about. Naked guy running through the scene. Uh, Peter denying Jesus. Again, if you're making that up, you're not going to make your key witnesses be scoundrels, be people who fail to get the message. Because the ancient legends that we can identify as legends, it's only good positive details about the people involved. And those who study those say, no, that's not what the New Testament is like at all. And then thirdly, the message was too costly to the authors. That is, these disciples gave their lives. Tradition tells us every one of them I'm reading now that some that are saying even the Apostle John died for his faith at some point. It used to be that we would say John was the only one that was spared because we have him writing the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos at the end of the New Testament. But some say, no, he was probably martyred for his faith too. Somebody will come back and say, yeah, but others have died for things that they believe to be true. That is true. Some people die believing a lie. But the difference is these were people who were eyewitnesses that could have saved their lives by saying, hey, you know, we made all this stuff up. We're sorry, spare our lives. They weren't just reading someone else's testimony hundreds of years later. As, uh, as Peter says in 1 Peter th uh, 1, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him glorified. We saw him crucified. We saw him raised again. And we are willing to give our lives for that testimony. Think, too, about the transformation uh, the night before Jesus, or the day that Jesus rises from the dead, where are the disciples? They're not out in the streets of Jerusalem saying, get ready, everybody. He's coming back. He said he was coming back. We're getting ready. Now, they're huddled in fear of the Jews. And you have Peter denying that he even knows Jesus. And then you have Thomas in John 20, who even after Jesus has been raised, and the other disciples say, Thomas, you'll never believe it. We were gathered together and Jesus appeared. Does he believe? No. He's like, unless I put my fingers in his hands and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, you don't include stuff like that if you're trying to make that up. And then the last one here, scri or number three, scribes change the New Testament manuscripts so they're now corrupt. I love this a little note to the teacher. Dear Mrs. F., M has a condition that makes it so when she does homework, it slowly kills her. 
please do not send her any more homework. And then supposedly the parent's signature. If you ever, I tried doing that one time and my mother showed me years later my, you know, childish attempt to sign her name. Um, we can tell right away if something is wrong. So it's usually very easy to spot what we call scribal emendations, attempts by scribes to correct the New Testament. That is, it shows up very clearly because either no other manuscript will have it in there or it's written on the side, written in a footnote, squeezed in between lines, using a different color, you know, ink, all different kinds of things like that. It's usually easy to spot those. And a scribal change, someone who's copying the manuscript, when that change happens, that does not indicate an error in the original manuscript. Just because a scribe makes a mistake does not mean that the original had any errors in it. And so people will often say, well, what about all the differences in the Bible? Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina in one of his books says there's 400,000 errors in the Bible. You hear that from a guy who's a scholar. It's like, whoa, how can I believe the Bible? And you know what Bart Ehrman does, and he knows this is not the right way to consider that. He takes all the 5,800 Greek manuscripts, notices all the differences between them because no two are alike, all the little spelling mistakes, all the scribal errors, and he counts them up. And if you were to compare 10 manuscripts with each other, you could only at the most come up with a couple hundred, you know, if you combine, if you compare manuscript A and B, let's say there's 18 differences, and then you compare A and C, and B and C, and B and D, and A and D, and A and C, that's how he gets to 400,000. And he knows that's not the way you count those. And yet it makes for great book sales when you can say, I have discovered 400,000 errors, when he knows, in fact, that's not at all the case. And then the last one, other books should be in the Bible. Have you ever heard this one? What about the Catholic Apocrypha, the, the nine or 11 books that are added in the Catholic Bible, depending on how you count them? There's also a group of writings called the Pseudepigrapha, books claimed to be written by the apostles. So you have the Gospel of Peter. You have... Uh, the testimony or the gospel of the 12 apostles. There, there's hundreds of those in the New Testament. I mean, I'm sorry, not in the New Testament, uh, in the ancient world that are available. How do we know those should not have been in the Bible? Maybe you've heard of the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary, where Jesus was supposedly married to Mary. Has anybody ever read um, the Da Vinci Code? In the middle of the Da Vinci Code, that, the whole book is about supposedly discovering that Jesus actually married Mary was not crucified, and that descendants of Jesus are alive today. And there was a really terrible movie, terrible in the sense of quality of filmmaking, with um, Tom Hanks made on it. But it's a fascinating book. And right in the middle of the book, chapter 55, some New Testament scholars trying to explain to the main characters in the book how the Bible uh, was, the truth of the original manuscripts was suppressed. Christianity originally had a goddess element to it. And God is partly feminine and divine, and that's been suppressed. And, and in the book, they discovered that these descendants of Jesus and feminism are what's really going to save us. And the book sold millions of copies, mostly because it was arguing that there were other books that should be in the Bible. But here's some of our answers. The early church that decided, or actually we don't want to use the word decided, came to realize the 27 books of the New Testament were what ought to belong there. The Old Testament was never really in question. 
The early church was in the best position to recognize which books were written by apostles or those acquainted with apostles. That is, some people want to say that, oh, the early church got together was a council of chauvinistic men, and so they left out any parts, any books that included, you know, elements of Jesus marrying Mary or something like that. Well, history just doesn't bear that story up. And they were in a good position to say, here's a book that claims to be written by Paul, but we know the books that were written by Paul. That's become obvious. And so the early church was not trying to squelch some part of Christianity. They were trying to be faithful to it and to the message of Jesus. And how did they come to recognize which books belonged in the Bible? The centrality of the gospel and continuity with the redemptive story of Jesus were the standards. Is, does this book continue um, preaching the gospel, expounding on the gospel, and does it continue to um, advance the message of Jesus. And it became very apparent to the people in the early church that there were some books that simply did not belong, that taught other doctrines. By the way, doctrines like purgatory and limbo in the Catholic Church, don't, they don't appear in the Bible, they appear in these extra books that wanted to be, that they wanted to include in there. And then lastly, this really is the last slide. The books of the New Testament were widely recognized as scripture from the beginning. That is, it was not some church council 300, 400 years after Jesus that said, hey, uh, let's call these books scripture and these not. Second Peter 3.16, Peter talks about some things that Paul wrote that were hard to understand. And then he calls those writings of Paul scripture. And that, what, what, that's significant because the only thing that was considered scripture in the New Testament initially was the Old Testament. But Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.16, uh, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So here's Peter saying, you know, some of those things Paul writes are really hard to understand. He said, as a result, the ignorant and unstable twist Paul's words to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. In other words, here, Peter already, before the New Testament is finished, is saying Paul's writings are scripture just like the Old Testament. So it's not true that it took the church 400 years to decide what was supposed to be in the Bible and what was not. That was recognized right away. So I've dumped a lot on you. Questions? Basically, when Christian scholars talk about the reliability of the Bible, they talk about these internal evidences, that which is in the text of the Bible, and these things outside about the text of the Bible. They say these are solid arguments that really have no answers by the critics. But what question does that raise in your mind about aspects in the Bible, anything in the Bible? Maybe like my students at the end of class are like, no one ask a question, no one ask a question. We can get out. I can be home by 8.30, get on Netflix by 8.32, and the rest of my night is secure. Yes? Yeah, good question. So Jesus says, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, 
the whale. Um, they didn't make clear distinctions between mammals and fish in the ancient days, so that was not an error there. And yet we celebrate what? Good Thursday? No, Good Friday, and so that's only two nights in. Uh, so is that a mistake? Is there a problem with that? Um, some traditions would say Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday, which would account then for the three days and nights. Others would recognize that this is uh, a Jewish counting of days where since Jesus was put in the tomb on Friday before sunset, that he was considered to be in the tomb on Friday all day Saturday. And then since it was during sunrise on Sunday morning, that he was still considered to be in the tomb. I think the comparison there between uh, being buried in the ground for several days is enough of an explanation, again, because they were not trying to be exact in the same way that we would expect today. The other solution is just to simply say Jesus was crucified on a Thursday, which could very well be. Um, There's some questions regarding the Passover at that point, but it's essentially not a, not a deal breaker, but it is something that Christians have disagreed on. It's a good one. Anyone else? Questions about the Bible or the reliability? Which version of the Bible do you use and why? I use the ESV um, because the intent behind the translation was to, as closely as possible, um, translate word for word, although it's, you can't do a direct word for word translation from one language to the other, as you know, if you've learned another language. It'd be nice if it was. But the translators of the ESV were more concerned to be as accurate to the intention and as much as possible preserve the word for word as much as possible. I think there are other good translations. I was raised in the King James Version, uh, which is a, a wonderful version literarily, uh, but it's not the English we speak today. And one of the hallmarks of Bible translation since the first century, uh, since Jesus spoke in the vernacular, the language of the people, um, that it is really important we use translations that people understand. Nothing wrong with using the King James if you, can under, if, if you understand 16th century English, which I do because I was raised on that. You had to learn it in order to understand the Bible. But there are a lot of people today who, who don't. Uh, I think the NIV is a good translation. It's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. I think there are bad translations. I think the message is a disaster. It's a nice poetic reflection on scripture, but it is not a translation. And there are others that, uh, that fiddle with key doctrines. And so I think the original RSV is, has serious problems, uh, but the ESV was based on that, made corrections. It was done by conservative scholars. So good question. We could talk about that forever, but probably no one except me is interested, me and Keith. Uh, question. Um, what texts are the translators using like, are they using literal ancient manuscripts or copies of those, like, not, like, written copies, but photos of them? Or are they using the ones that would have been made, like, 1500s? What specifically do you know the answer Good question. So depending on the translation, some translations are made from previous English translations, the ESV and other well-known translations, the NIV, the King James Version, uh, were, were made from copies of the original manuscripts. Original manuscripts of the Bible are delicate, gentle, or not gentle, they're, um, they're rare, they're delicate, easily damaged, and so we have facsimile copies, as they call them, 
so they can they can actually study those. And and most of the well-known translations, that's how they're. You have you have real Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic scholars that study those and and translate from that. So the argument that like it's been passed down through many languages kind of falls apart. Yeah, it's actually specifically languages. Yeah, it's actually a really good thing that that early on it was translated into dozens of languages. Aramaic, um, Coptic, Syriac, Akkadian. Um, there's, there's at least 20-something languages in the first six centuries of the church that the Bible was translated into. So when people begin to study, you know, what, what is the original wording, the original intent, you not only have Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Aramaic, and Greek in the New Testament, you have these hundreds or dozens of other languages that were carefully copied and uh, translated so that we can go back and say, you know, what did they think this said or meant? And it's very clear that uh, the Bible that we have today is the Word of God. It accurately reflects the original. By the way, I, about a hundred years ago at the founding of Westminster Theological Seminary where I did my doctorate, one of the first professors was a guy named Robert Dick Wilson, who was a faithful servant of God, brilliant man, who was tired of all the criticism coming against the Bible 100 years ago. So he learned all 26 languages that the Bible was translated into by 600 years after Christ and was a world expert on 26 ancient languages. And so critics would write something, he'd fire back this response because he knew it as well as anyone else. And so we have gifted godly scholars like that who, who are the world leaders in things like that, which is, which is a great blessing. Yeah, I think it's mostly because they don't like it. And really, when you get past a lot of the intellectual arguments, they don't want to stop living with their girlfriend. Or they don't want God telling them what to do, or they don't want someone telling them that they can't do this or that. That's behind a lot of the intellectual arguments. You do meet sometimes people who would like to believe, but they, they have all these obstacles in the way that they've been told or they cling to. And it's not a matter of their life choices, but they just they don't believe the Bible to be true. Or Jesus to be the you know the way to God, but I think the majority of people don't want someone telling them what to do. That atheist conference that's going on right now in Philadelphia, you can go on and watch some of their videos. Most of these people have no intellectual arguments against Jesus that are serious. They just don't want there to be a God who tells them that they're accountable or guilty. So it becomes very clear when you watch that. So that, that's my take on people that I meet. So once you clear those intellectual obstacles, you've got to address the issue of the heart. Okay, so you don't want God telling you what to do. That doesn't change the fact that God is real, that he's communicated that you're guilty before him, and that he loves you. And that's sometimes where you have to go, is what God can give you in salvation is better than whatever sin you want to cling to. Whereas their argument, well, I don't, I don't believe because it's not true. And the, the upfront reason is something like this. Yeah, I don't believe it's true. Yeah. That's their... Yeah, I, I think that's probably the majority of people you'll meet. And I think they say that because, number one, they know they're guilty, so they don't want to have to face up to that, or they're living a life that they don't want to be told they can't live. Another question? You said earlier that um, about most scholars don't argue that Jesus lived, died, and then was empty tomb. 
I guess we could talk about that for hours, but days. But is there any easily communicable evidence that you can tell us that points to that? That he existed? Yeah, like is there is he, is he mentioned in other ancient texts? That Yes, uh, Jesus is mentioned by several historians, Josephus and Philo, who are two ancient historians. They mention Jesus. They don't say a lot about him. Uh, but Bart Ehrman, the critic I keep talking about, got so tired of atheists trying to get him on board with them saying Jesus didn't exist that he wrote an entire book entitled Did Jesus Exist? And he argues for the existence of Jesus as an atheist. He said, and he, he's very... Like he, he can be very aggressive and antagonistic. He said, I don't know of a single historian. He said, I know most of the historians in the world at all the major universities. He said, I don't know one that denies Jesus existed. So he says, it's an established fact that Jesus lived in the first century. He was a Jewish man, gathered a group of followers around him, um, caught the ire of the Roman Empire, was crucified, and his disciples claimed that he rose again a few days later. He said, no real historian doubts those facts because... By any standards of history, those are secure. So I'd, I'd recommend even reading his book, Did Jesus Exist? Now, he doesn't believe Jesus is the savior of the world or anything like that, but he said to deny Jesus, then we have to doubt everything that happened before we were born. And you think about that. How do we even know that the world didn't come into existence five minutes ago with all of our memories pre-programmed? Think about that. Is there any way for you to know that's not, that's not how it happened? that all the memories you have are just pre-programmed? There's no way to know that. And yet we can't live that way because that would lead to insanity. And so we have to assume that the past exists and that we can know what it was. So, good questions. Yes? Could you explain how uh, BC and AD uh, refers to Christ? Yeah, so the Julian calendar, I think is what it's called, somewhere in the Middle, middle Ages, the medieval time, they were trying to create a universal way to um, record time. Up until that time, there, there, was, there was no B.C. or A.D. So sometime in the, ooh, I'm really sketchy on the details here. Anybody else know these? Sometime in the Middle Ages, between 500 and 1500, someone said, let's set the um, birth of Christ or the, the life of Christ as the dividing point between the previous um, era of human history and the post-era of human history. I've heard that used as an argument. It's really not. It just means that someone who was in power determined this is what will divide history, B.C. and A.D. Jesus was actually born 4 B.C. So he was not born in the year zero. There is no year zero. He was born in 4 B.C. And we line that up according to some of the events mentioned in the Gospels. Who was in power in Rome at the time, the time of the census. And he died between, sometime between 30 and 33 A.D. So we always say Jesus was 33. He could have been 36, 37, because if he was born 4 B.C. and died 30 or 33 A.D., that would make 30, somewhere between 33 and 37 years old. So we don't, we don't want to put a stake in the ground about that. It's just like the age of the earth. I believe in a young earth, but I, I am not going to, make an argument that the earth is how many thousand years old because the Bible doesn't teach it. I want to stick with what the Bible does teach because that's what I can really prove or demonstrate. So, great question. Any others? All right. I am so glad that you came back. Like, I was really expecting Keith and I and maybe a couple other diehards. So, <laughs> I'm impressed to give up your Saturday night. I hope this was helpful. I know it's a lot to take in. Again, 
if you can avail yourself of those resources or any of the websites online. This is the stuff where we can begin to learn some basic facts. So when people ask the questions, we give an answer. And when you're ready with answers like this, sometimes people say, oh, I always thought it was this way, but I guess I, guess I was wrong. And it's just another block being pulled down. So let me ask a prayer blessing on us to use what we've learned over the last 24 hours. God, we are so thrilled as we study these things to see how reliable, how dependable, how true our faith is. Build our confidence so that when we do share the gospel, we would not do so timidly and with fear, but rather boldly knowing that you have given us a faith unlike any other religion in the world that's built on these historical events, centered on the person and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and that we would boldly go into these spiritual battles trying to win people to Christ because the faith that we're trying to pass on is something that is not just a wishful thinking. And we rejoice in that today. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, that he is alive and that he empowers us and gives us his authority to speak. And help us, Lord, to begin to pray and that this week, this month, we would begin to reach out, knowing that you will bless our efforts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.